Welcome to QUT Exec Insights, brought to you by QUTX, professional and executive education for the real world. I'm your host, Kate Joyner. Today, we bring you an interview with former and 28th Prime Minister of Australia, the Honourable Tony Abbott. This is by way of counterpoint to an earlier interview we recorded with the Honourable Kevin Rudd as part of our National Public Sector Management Program. The interview took place over Zoom with an audience of 120 public servants who are current or former participants of our QUT Public Sector Management Program. Mr Abbott answered questions submitted by the group, including his proudest achievements as PM and his advice for practising public servants. This is an edited version of a longer webinar recording which is available through the QUTX website. The event was brought into being by QUTX colleagues Dr Tony Peloso, who was the host, and Catherine Batch, who was event impresario. Enjoy Tony Abbott on leadership and the public good. This whole question of public value, let me come at it uh, in this way by posing a couple of questions and offering a couple of thoughts. Uh, first question I want to pose is why do people go into public life, uh, whether it's into parliament, whether it's into the administration, whether it's into any entity which has a role or an influence on public life. Uh, it's easy to be sceptical about politicians. It's easy to be, I suppose, pretty sour about public servants and other officials. But in the end, no one goes into any form of public life without a strong sense of idealism and without wanting to do good. I want to make that very clear. Everyone is in it to try to do the right thing by their own lights. Now, next question I want to pose is, what do the public expect of their members of parliament? What do the public expect of their governments? What do the public expect of officials who they're dealing with? Now, if you ask them, they'd probably scratch their heads and say, well, we want them to be honest. We want them to be authentic. We want them to be hardworking. Um, if you're a, a voter of the right, you probably want them to be uh, promoting more freedom. If you're a voter of the left, you probably want them to be promoting more fairness. Uh, of course, there's a, an intimate relationship between freedom and fairness. Uh, with no freedom, there can be no fairness. And I suppose with total uh, license, there can be uh, no fairness either, can there? So there is a relationship between those. But in the end, regardless of your own ideological or intellectual predispositions, what people want of government at all levels is to get things done, to address practical problems. And if, you're asked, if you ask the person in the street, what are the things that matter to him or to her, um, he or she will say, look, uh, I want my cost of living to be manageable. I want my job to be secure. I want my business to be prosperous. I want my housing to be affordable. I want my community to be safe. Um, and I want a better future for my kids. It's not all that um, complex. In fact, it's, it's pretty straightforward. Now, I think that there's uh, enormous frustration uh, generally uh, in Australia, but throughout the Western world with governments at this time. And, and the problem 
is not so much uh, any moral failing on the part of uh, politicians and officials. The problem is not uh, that these times are uniquely difficult. Uh, the problem, I think, is that it is actually harder and harder to get things done. Um, harder and harder to get things done. Now, yes, in part, that's because uh, our polity is more fractious than ever. Uh, I suspect that our society is more fragmented and polarised than it was in the recent past. In part, this is because um, parliaments are less workable. Upper houses are much more bolshy than in the past. Um, our federation is much more complex and I would say confused than in the past. But a big, big feature of this is that at every level, more and more decisions have been subcontracted from elected accountable politicians to unelected unaccountable officials. Now, I've got to say here, given that there's quite a few officials on this call, that I have nothing but respect and admiration for the diligence and the competence and the professionalism of uh, the Australian official class. Uh, the public servants that I've worked with over the years have all been excellent people. But I think the system is becoming more and more gummed up. Take planning, for instance, here in New South Wales. Um, every time there's a problem, uh, a new body is set up. No old bodies are ever abolished, but new bodies are set up, which mean that, means that the cost and the complexity, the time uh, and the opportunities for obstruction and lawfare and all the rest of it uh, are just becoming almost endless. And I think this is a problem for our country and it's a problem for our system. Now, all of these subcontracting out of decision-making away from elected accountable members of parliament and governments uh, towards unelected unaccountable officials are justified in terms of wanting to depoliticize the system. Take the politics out, let the experts decide. But the trouble is experts in their own way uh, can uh, be just as uh, tunnel visioned, just as close-minded, just as biased, if you like, uh, as, as politicians. Uh, and yet the one thing you can't do with an expert is vote him or her out at the next election if you don't like what's being done. So I think this is a massive problem. Uh, I think the real democratic deficit in our country uh, is that more and more stuff is not in the hands of elected accountable politicians and in the hands of unelected unaccountable officials. Now, you might say, well, this is all very well, but what's it to do with public good? The topic of this discussion. Well, as I understand the concept of public good, it's how does government in its totality contribute to the common good? It seems to me like a, an, acade an academic way, if I may say so, of approaching the age-old challenge 
how do we do our job better? Um, and if I may say so, one of the reasons why academic faculties of government and political science um, aren't perhaps taken as seriously as they should be uh, by the practitioners of government and the practitioners of politics is because there is this tendency to make everything too academic. Um, you may or may not find this hard to credit, but uh, this is only the second time uh, in 25 years uh, or more in public life, it's 26 years now since I was first elected to parliament, it's only the second time in all that quarter century that I've been asked by an Australian university to participate in its discussions in any way, shape or form. And you'd think having been involved in government uh, in the parliament for a quarter century uh, on the front bench for uh, 20 years um, in the ministry for 11 years and uh, as prime minister for two years, you'd think I'd have something useful to contribute, wouldn't you? Anyway, that's a, a little bit of an aside. I just want to finish up these opening remarks by by taking a real live issue and offering you a few thoughts. Now, obviously managing the pandemic is uh, the complete preoccupation of just about everyone in public life right now. Uh, let's look at uh, pandemic management in Victoria. Let's look at the policy, let's look at the practice. Well, at every point in time, we've been told by members of the Victorian government from the Premier down, that what they are doing has been done on the advice of experts. Well, it now seems that some of the experts, whether it's the Chief Health Officer or the Police Commissioner, uh, are coming out and saying, well, actually, we didn't advise you to do this. Can I just say that um, politicians who want to avoid scrutiny will often take refuge in telling their audience that what they're doing is done on expert advice. Um, it's a way of, if you like, establishing your moral authority over and above that of anyone who would uh, pose questions. And look, um, in the end, my own view is that um, experts advise, governments decide, and you should never uh, try to uh, uh, share around responsibility by attributing what you do uh, to someone else, uh, however eminent. Now let's look briefly at the practice. Well, there are two things that you've got to do uh, in a pandemic if you're a state government. Um, first of all, you've got to uh, manage quarantine as well as you possibly can. And plainly, that wasn't done. There were wasn't a lot of public good in the way that was handled. And secondly, you've got to um, organise testing, tracing and isolating. And while some states have managed pretty well, after the initial Ruby Princess catastrophe, New South Wales seems to have got on top of this uh, about as well as anyone uh, can expect. Uh, but again, uh, big problems in Victoria, elementary mistakes. Um, I mean, I heard the Chief Health Officer yesterday talking about, uh, oh, look, everything's going pretty well. 
we are getting to people who've tested positive within 24 hours and we're getting to their contacts within 48 hours. Well, frankly, if, if that's regarded as good performance, uh, no wonder things have got so completely out of control. Um, test results have got to be uh, got back quickly. Um, people who are positive need to be contacted instantaneously. Uh, within a couple of hours, it should be possible to at least make a very comprehensive start on contact tracing. And again, in this era of mobile phones and text messages, it ought to be possible to get hold of people uh, well within uh, those sorts of timeframes. And to think that 24 hours for the primary uh, person and 48 hours for their contacts is somehow acceptable is just absurd, absolutely uh, absurd. So again, I get back to the fundamental question, do the job properly. Uh, the best way to uh, realize public good in inverted commas is for everyone in public life um, from the lowest official uh, to the highest politician to do your job <clears throat> as well as possible. And look, we can have all the, if you like, uh, um, nice to do things in the world, uh, like uh, businesses that go out and sponsor orchestras and uh, uh, provide money for the local footy team um, and government departments with uh, massive social inclusion programs and all the rest of it, nice to do. Uh, but anything that detracts from getting the basic job done, in my judgment, does not advance uh, public good at all, uh, because it's the job uh, that the public expect you to do. Um, if you're a policeman, keep the streets safe. Uh, if you're a nurse, provide the best possible service to everyone uh, who is under your care. If you're a teacher, uh, try to inspire intellectual curiosity uh, and ensure that those un under uh, your uh, tutelage have the essentials uh, to be able to make sense of whatever subject it might be. Get those basic, basic things done uh, and everything else is essentially just the icing on the cake. So uh, Catherine and Tony, thanks very much for the chance to say a few words and over to the questions. Thank you, Mr. Abbott, for that, uh, <clears throat> those insights, that passion and that clarity. And a couple of things that I immediately take out, your, your, uh, your expression of wanting to do good. And, and mm -hmm. I certainly, with the experience that we have with the members of the, of the PSMP cohorts, absolutely, we know that they show up with passion. I do love those two comments or three words that you used, I would summarise as fairness and freedom. That is a wonderful, we talk a lot about fairness. Mm. Australians are very fairness oriented. Mm. And I do, that was a very insightful piece about uh, fairness and freedom. And I hear very strongly you make the, the uh, point about responsibility. And I think that's uh, very important. Now, we, I think you're gonna allow us to go off, um, off script for a moment yeah. here. Mm -hmm. The comment that you made about uh, where the second university in your time in, in yeah. senior public life, I think is very, very touching and very <clears> important. <throat> We are the university for the real world, and we do. I'll uh, just get a little plug. We do get. We, we do believe, and I do want to. Mm. Catherine's <laughs> deliberate passion to have people at the highest level of public service in Australia to come and address. So mm. I think that's a credit 
to Catherine and also to you, sir, for accepting our invitation. Thank you. Well, look, I, one of the things that one of the things that ex prime ministers can, with honour, do, Tony, is uh, try to contribute to the insights and the understanding of the coming generations. So, any university within reason that would uh, like to avail itself of my insights, such as they are, would be very welcome. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Now we have a, a, a one of our favourite questions for you right here. So thinking of your time as Prime Minister, what are you most proud of? Mm. Okay, well look, uh, quite apart from the fact that merely to get there is something to be proud of, given that uh, even now in 120 years there have only been 30 people who've been Prime Minister of this wonderful country. The two things that I would be most proud of, and look, you know, it can never be about me, it's got to be about the country, otherwise uh, you're kind of missing the point. But uh, no one thought we could stop the illegal boat arrivals, and we did. Uh, I can remember talking to Philip Ruddock and John Howard, both of whom had been involved at the heart of stopping a smaller earlier wave. Uh, both of them thought the wave we faced in the middle of 2013 was, uh, was really completely out of control and beyond stopping, but we did that. And in order to do so, we had to um, overcome a lot of official scepticism from people who had been part of failing to stop the boats under the previous government. I'm pleased to say there was one senior official out of about a dozen who uh, remained optimistic that it, that it could be done. And uh, he was right. And all of the doubters and naysayers were wrong. Uh, one of the naysayers uh, said, look, uh, you know, you're going to upset the Indonesians, to which my response was, well, of course, we're going to upset the Indonesians. Uh, imagine if the situation was reversed and boats were coming illegally from Australia to Indonesia. Uh, I don't imagine the Indonesians would be too worried about upsetting us. Well, we have to be just as tough-minded uh, in dealing with them as they would be on something like this in dealing with us. So, so look, that was something obviously that I was very proud of. And I suppose I should say before I leave this topic, uh, I can understand why people living in rather horrible countries would like to come to Australia. And I could understand why they think that flying to Indonesia, uh, going to the south coast of Java uh, and paying 10 or 15,000 bucks to a people smuggler uh, might be a good thing to do. If I was living in Afghanistan or Pakistan or Iraq or Syria or somewhere like that, uh, why wouldn't I want to come to Australia? But Australian governments have a duty uh, to the existing people of this country uh, to keep our borders secure. Uh, if you haven't got your borders secure, uh, you haven't got your country secure. You are on the road to losing your sovereignty. So it's not about being uh, anti the people who are on the boats. I can absolutely understand why they wanted to come. Uh, it's about doing the right thing by the people of Australia. Second thing I was uh, very pleased to have been able to do was managed to respond, I think, uh, strongly and suitably to the shooting down of MH17 by Russian-backed rebels uh, in July of uh, 2014. 
this was an absolute atrocity, an absolute atrocity. As I said in the parliament that morning, it was not a tragedy, it is a crime, a crime. And uh, crime cannot go uh, unacknowledged and uh, as far as possible, it should never go unpunished. Now, um, we did our best to hold the Russian government to account um, and by being very, very firm, uh, we got uh, we got those uh, those Australians. Uh, we got their remains back and uh, back for their families. And uh, I think uh, it could easily have uh, turned out even worse uh, had we not been able to respond very strongly as an Australian government. Again, I can remember sitting in the National Security Committee of the Cabinet, which sat uh, very long and very regularly through that time. And a couple of times the officials uh, were, uh, uh, how do we say, I think they uh, were inclined to think there was nothing that could be done. Um, I can remember saying, so what would, uh, what would if, if there were 40 Americans dead in this plane, what would be happening now? Uh, one of them said, well, the 82nd Airborne would be on its way. And I said, well, okay, we haven't quite got the 82nd Airborne, uh, but uh, we can't just accept that, uh, that this has happened and there's nothing that we can do. Uh, because if you do accept that there's nothing that can be done, uh, you are essentially saying to bullies, well, um, the field is yours and no self-respecting country can allow that to be the case. Nice. So very powerful. Thank you. So I'm going to pass to Catherine. Now, I do, do just want to say my father emigrated from Italy after World War II, and he thought he'd won the lottery every single day. <laughs> so I'll uh, <laughs> thank you for those comments. And I'm sure he's very proud of you as well, Tony. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> um, so we might just sort of shift. We've got some questions from the PSMP group, and one of them was, and it's quite connected to your last comment. So in times of crises, how should policymakers go about decision making to ensure that citizens are supported and the Commonwealth is preserved? And I think that's quite connected to the um, example you've had with the US obviously deploying um, mm. action as a result. I mean, how would you comment to that question? Well, the first thing you've got to do is you have got to size up the situation as best you can. And having made the best assessment you can of the peril, having considered as best you can the upsides and the downsides of any action, you've got to do what you think is best at that time. But one thing you've always got to do is, uh, with an unfolding situation, is respond intelligently to things as they develop. And let's just take the pandemic, for instance. Now, uh, when we had uh, uh, the reports out of China in late January, early February of something really, really catastrophic happening in Wuhan, and then uh, come the beginning of March when we started to get the footage out of Northern Italy of hospitals in meltdown and bodies uh, in corridors and so on, I think it was uh, understandable and reasonable for 
governments to uh, to lock down. I think it was all understandable and reasonable. Um, I think it was also fairly obvious by early April that uh, this wasn't the Black Death. Um, it probably wasn't even the Spanish flu. And my own judgment is that a few weeks of lockdown uh, would have been necessary in order for us to get our hospitals prepared, uh, in order to get our, our, our quarantining systems um, perfected, in order to sort out uh, testing, tracing and isolating systems. Uh, and I think at that point, uh, we should have, with, you know, taking the public into your confidence, I mean, telling the public uh, uh, what you're thinking, um, outlining the problem as you see it, uh, outlining the threat as you see it, uh, both to lives and to livelihoods, uh, and then explaining why you were doing things. Uh, I think we should have taken a rather more liberal approach than, than we did. It's interesting, uh, if you go back to the expert recommendations of dealing with pandemics um, prior to this actual outbreak, uh, lockdowns and border closures uh, played almost no part in it. Um, and I wonder if, uh, if the thing had, had first become apparent anywhere other than Wuhan, uh, in a highly uh, autocratic, indeed totalitarian country, whether we would have uh, adopted lockdowns uh, quite as swiftly and quite as comprehensively as we did. Thank you. I'll just now pass to Tony. So, Mr. Abbott, um, the roles of many of our uh, global public policy organisations are being questioned and reframed. Yeah. Would you care to comment on this? And in particular, are there any organisations or frameworks that you'd like to focus on? Look, uh, I'm, I'm generally in favour of, of uh, international bodies because all of the international bodies were essentially set up uh, in the aftermath of World War II and they reflect the ethos the Anglo-American ethos, um, the, I suppose, liberal mindset, uh, which uh, inspired the uh, principal victors uh, of that horrible cataclysm. So we are still in this sense, living in a post-war world. Now, uh, global bodies, uh, which back then might've had 20 or 30 members now have almost 200 members and quite a few of the members don't share that liberal pluralist democratic mindset which animated uh, the Anglo-American victors of the Second World War. Nevertheless, I think it's important that countries like Australia participate very vigorously in these organisations to defend and protect and where, and, where, and where possible extend that liberal pluralist democratic mindset but we've always got to do it on the basis of a very clear conception of our values and, dare I say it, our own national interest. Um, I'm not in favour of going into these global bodies seeking soggy compromises. Um, I'm in favour of going into these bodies 
try to build coalitions uh, for good values and good outcomes. Uh, that's what I'm in favour of. Now, I think that uh, Australia was obviously extremely successful uh, going into the World Health Organisation recently with a proposal for an independent um, uh, thorough investigation into the origins of the pandemic. Um, Self-evidently sensible. Uh, in the end, even the Chinese felt they couldn't oppose it, although they've been taking it out on us ever since. So, so look, we need to make the most of global bodies, but we need to do so uh, from a position of confidence, uh, not from a position of, oh, look, you know, uh, we just want to go with the flow and whatever you guys think is a good idea, we'll, we'll, we'll fit in with. Mm. Well, this question follows perfectly on from that. So uh, what is Australia's role going forward in terms of shaping global thinking? And what do you think should be Australia's key initiative on the global stage? Mm. Okay, that's a very fair point. And I dare say, <laughs> I'm expected to say, doing more on climate change <laughs> or something like that. Um, look, uh, uh, I, I think we, we, we do best on the global stage when we come to a particular issue or a particular entity with some standing. And interestingly, Australia is the country which has best managed uh, a wave of illegal would-be migration by sea. Uh, other countries are still wrestling with this. Uh, the Europeans obviously have still got a huge problem with uh, boats coming across the Mediterranean. The British now have a huge problem with rubber duckies going across the English Channel. So I think that's an issue that we can speak with some authority on, uh, some credibility on. And, and look, uh, the fundamental point is that um, no one country is obliged to be a lifeboat for the world. Uh, every country has a right, and I would argue a duty, uh, to keep its character and uncontrolled immigration, um, notwithstanding the fact that the would-be migrants claim to be asylum seekers. Um, as I've said often enough, and yes, uh, uh, copped some criticism for, uh, it amounts to a peaceful invasion uh, if it happens in sufficient numbers. And once it starts, these things tend to grow and grow and grow. So uh, I think um, making it crystal clear in all world bodies that sovereign governments have a right to control their own borders. Uh, sovereign governments are under no obligation to accept everyone who wants to come. There is a world of difference between um, people who cross a border uh, to, uh, to escape um, dreadful persecution uh, and people having crossed one border in order to be safe, then decide they'd rather be prosperous and cross several more borders. I mean, once they've crossed another border beyond the point of first refuge, they cease to be refugees in any meaningful sense uh, and they become would-be economic migrants and countries have, have no obligation to accept people under those circumstances. I'm going to throw you a, a couple of, uh, of, of uh, let's call them lovely softball questions. So part oh, of it is for me. They're the hardest. 
<laughs> a lot of people, a lot of great batsmen get out to full tosses, don't they? <laughs> yeah. That's a great point. So um, we're in the business of education and I didn't read out that you are also a Rhodes Scholar. So first thing I'm curious about the impact that that, that education had on you. And the second mm -hmm. thing is uh, someone on our panelists said to you, where do you find the energy to do all the things you have accomplished? So combine <laughs> those two in any way that you wish. Well, um, look, I was incredibly lucky uh, to get the chance to go to Oxford and I learned some wonderful lessons for life uh, there. Um, I confess that I didn't take my studies as seriously as I should have when I was at Sydney University. Uh, I, you know, I was, I was, I was so pleased to get out of school and get to university. I was sick of being at school. Uh, I wanted to be uh, a kind of adult, and you can be a kind of adult at university. Uh, and the last thing I wanted to do was sit in lectures um, and be hosed down with stuff which you could very easily just get out of the textbook at your own time and in your own way. So I spent most of my time at Sydney University playing rugby, socialising, um, getting involved in student politics. Uh, I've got to say that big lecture format was not very conducive uh, to a deep intellectual engagement. Um, that started to change in my final year at Sydney University when I was lucky enough to have Professor Alice Tay, the late great Professor Alice Tay as my jurisprudence professor. And uh, that course was mostly taught in small tutorials and that made a huge difference. And I think I did finally start to grasp what a university education was all about. Then I was lucky enough to go to Oxford. And initially uh, I would read everything that the tutor told me to read. And I would put together these pathetic essays that were just collages of quotations. And apart from the fact that I sensed that this wasn't really what was expected of me, uh, the dismay of my tutors was palpable. And at some point after a couple of months, the penny dropped that I was supposed to read these bloody things, assimilate them, and then address the topic in my own way and in my own words. And once, once I discovered that, uh, I, I, I so enjoyed my time uh, at university and, and it was wonderful preparation for everything I've done subsequently as a journalist, uh, as an advocate, uh, as a member of parliament. Um, look at the facts, um, get the opinions, uh, assimilate it as far as you can, um, then make of it what you will uh, come to your own conclusions, make your own decisions, and then go for it. Now, as for all these extracurricular things, well, you know, uh, I can remember uh, my, well, I, I joined the local fire brigade because we live on the bush and I didn't think that I could realistically ask other people to defend my neighbourhood if I wasn't prepared to do my own bit for it as well. And uh, I can remember after my first fire call, it, it so happened I was doing my first duty crew with the Davidson Brigade uh, on a Sunday. We got a fire call um, and we probably only get, you know, 40 calls a year. So it was quite a, uh, uh, 
I suppose, serendipitous, if you like, that we got a fire call on this day. Um, funnily enough, my first cabinet meeting was the following day. I'd just been promoted to cabinet and, and uh, the skipper turned around to me and he said, so all you guys ride for an overnight, overnight deployment. And I thought to myself, geez, that means I'm gonna be late for the cabinet meeting the next day. What do I do? And I thought, well, if I say, sorry, fellas, I've got a cabinet meeting to go to the next day, these guys will never take me seriously again. So I took a few deep breaths, rang my office and said, you're gonna to have to put an apology for me to that meeting. I got there about midday, smelling like a barbecue. And one of my colleagues said to me, oh, what kept you? And I said, oh, I got a call out with the local brigade. And the colleague said, oh, Tony, you're a cabinet minister now. And, you know, occasionally the words come to you. Often they don't, but they did on this occasion. I said to her, you know, you've got to be a human being before you can be a cabinet minister. <laughs> <laughs> now I see these extracurricular things in inverted commas as part of being a human being living in my part of Sydney. Thanks for joining us for this episode of QUT Exec Insights. If you would like more information about QUTX programs for you or your organisation, search QUTX, that's Q-U-T-E-X, and you will find our full range of professional and executive development programs. Thanks to Sue York for sound recording and editing. See you next time.